Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lending News You Can Use. In this podcast series, we provide news or discussions on legal issues in the Canadian finance space. My name is Corey Williams, and I'm a partner in the Financial Services Group at Denton's Toronto. Today's episode is relevant to any secured lender in Canada lending money to any entity that leases a property that is integral to its operations. For example, an entity that stores large amounts of inventory at a leased premises. Today, we're talking about landlord agreements, what they're used for, what to do if you can't get them, and how how useful they are. Joining me today are John Salmas, a partner in our restructuring, insolvency, and bankruptcy group at Denton's Toronto, as well as Daniel Augustinovich, a senior associate in the financial services group at Denton's Toronto. Hello, gentlemen. Why don't you break it down for our listeners? What does a landlord agreement give a lender? Uh, Thanks, Corey. So landlord agreement provides for six main items. Uh, The landlord, firstly, agrees to give the lender notice of default and the opportunity to cure such default before the landlord terminates the lease. Second, the landlord consents to the tenant assigning its leasehold interest to the lender as security. Third, the landlord agrees that it will not unreasonably withhold its consent to the lender assigning the lease or subletting the premises to a third party. This is particularly important uh, for a going concern sale. Fourth, landlord agreements provide for a waiver of the right of distraint by the lender. The right of distraint is the right to sell the tenant's goods, which, as an aside, can be defeated by a bank act security since title to the inventory passes to the lender under the bank act if the lender is a bank and if the debtor is a borrower. But this will be covered in a future podcast. Fifth, The lender may have access to the premises to remove the tenant's property under the landlord agreement. And lastly, item six, the lender may occupy the premises provided the rent continues to be paid as a right in any landlord agreement. So clearly to our listeners, this sounds great in theory, but probably difficult in practice to get an arm's length landlord to agree to give up all those rights because a landlord has no economic incentive to do so. So John, I'm sure Daniel is a savvy negotiator and is able to bend landlords and their counsel to his will and get whatever he needs from a landlord agreement. But what happens if he doesn't get one at all? Does a lender just take a rental reserve from the proceeds of the loan and perhaps bank act security and then hope for the best in an enforcement? Yes. John, how would a court treat a lease premises if the lender had no landlord agreement whatsoever or if the lender had some watered down version of a landlord agreement? Thank you, Daniel and Corey. Um, Let me just just start off by discussing the method by which a court process could unfold in a secured creditor enforcement scenario. The lender actually acts as the entity applying to the court, seeking the appointment of a court-appointed receiver. Uh, But once the order, the receivership order is granted, it's the court-appointed receiver that is the entity that conducts the receivership proceedings, not the lender. Uh, and in Toronto, we have a model form of order in which the Commercial List Users Committee, a group of lawyers, accountants, and judges have banded together to create a, a form of order, which says that the court-appointed officer takes possession and control over all the property of the debtor, including the debtor's leasehold interest. That order also provides a stay of proceedings, which stays the rights and remedies against the debtor, the property, and the receiver. And so any landlord rights would be stayed once that order is granted. So depending on whether or not the receiver is going to carry on the business, if it is to do so and requires the lease premises, 
the court appointed receiver would be uh, determined to have adopted the lease and would be liable for rent and would have to pay based on the receiver's occupation of the property. The order that uh, appoints receivers also deals with potential ability of receivers to sell and convey and assign assets. Um, I'll park that for a second. But, but in, in, in some, um, in a world in which there is no landlord agreement, the court has a roadmap to allow access to the premises and use of the premises uh, so long as the receiver pays it uh, under the purview of the model receivership order. Um, and if there is a watered down version of a landlord agreement, uh, it'd be something that people would have to grapple with in terms of structuring the receivership proceedings, but it wouldn't be anything that's insurmountable. Um, and the, the agreement, to the, depending on how uh, onerous it might be, it can be crafted around, especially since the uh, receiver only really steps in the shoes of the debtor, uh, as opposed to uh, has to discharge the obligations um, uh, that are onerous, perhaps as against a lender. Uh, but in respect of um, the actual receivership order itself, it, a, a, an agreement of that nature could play a role uh, in the manner by which the order is drafted. I, I will say that, you know, there also is um, debtor proceedings, like under the CCWA and the Bankruptcy Insolvency Act, which are not uh, secured credit enforcement. Uh, and in those proceedings, because the proceedings are debtor-led uh, as opposed to creditor-led, uh, it's a bit of a different uh, universe uh, in that the contracts of the debtor continue. And there has been you know, noteworthy cases in high-profile CCWA proceedings, such as Target and Payless, uh, in which landlords have banded together and created significant difficulties for the debtor's construct uh, under those proceedings. So in sum, uh, I would say that um, uh, you're better off in a world in which you have a very garden variety landlord agreement uh, other than having to try to negotiate something that's more uh, onerous. Uh, so John, is there an argument then that a lender is potentially better off with no landlord agreement than a bad one? Yeah, it's an easy thing to say, but um, a landlord agreement uh, that provides, you know, strictly a, a landlord's waiver of its distress rights is extremely valuable. Uh, um, and in addition, if it uh, subordinates its interest to, for example, fixtures or PIMSIs, that would also be very beneficial to a landlord, to a lender, sorry. It's easy to say, but um, a landlord agreement that provides for a landlord's waiver of its distress rights would be extremely valuable to a a lender in an enforcement scenario, um, especially if it also subordinates landlords' rights in other collateral like fixtures and PIMSIs. It, it might be beneficial to take a look at a, a, a potentially unfavorable landlord agreement so long as it also provides a waiver of distress rights, but that's uh, on a case-by-case -case basis. And so as previously mentioned, a lender has recourse to appointing a court-appointed officer by a court order which provides it with all the access um, rights it needs uh, in respect of a uh, lease premise. So um, you be, you'll be much worse off entering into a negotiation where you might think that the landlord on the other side may gameplay the negotiation, delay or uh, string out the negotiations for its own purposes uh, and not end up in any kind of uh, executable uh, document. Um, and a landlord-friendly agreement could provide a roadmap for creative and aggressive landlord counsel to attend future court proceedings 
that might uh, uh, be detrimental to the, the, the construct of the filing uh, in favor of the lender. So uh, specifically on future sales processes and liquidation sales, uh, a favorable land, a landlord favorable landlord agreement could come back to affect the construct of the sales process in the future. So in that scenario, it'd be better off for the lender just to strictly rely on its security interest, seek the ability to appoint, appoint the receiver under a court order without spending a lot of time negotiating a possibly negatively impacting uh, landlord agreement. Thanks, John. It is certainly worthwhile for lenders to think about the potential negative uh, consequences of an unfavorable landlord agreement, and even maybe review agreements that they have in place to assess their value and quality. Uh, your insights today have been very interesting, and I want to thank you for joining us. I know we're going to have you back uh, in the future, and we look forward to that uh, and your invaluable insolvency perspective. Thanks for joining us for Lending News You Can Use. Please note that we've distilled complicated concepts for the ease of the listener, and if you need any specific advice or have any questions on a lending issue, feel free to reach out to us. Denton's is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Please see dentons.com for legal notices. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for other episodes in our podcast series.